And so today we're going to look at what Paul says, but we're going to go back into Genesis and find that and paint this reality, paint the picture of how the world really is. We'll be in Genesis, we'll be in Daniel, and then finally we'll end in Ephesians with how do we stand firm. But Paul is trying to get us, and my goal today is that we see the world in the three realities that, that we live in. We're in a battle is the first reality. There's a battle around us. The second reality is that we are to stand firm. We're not to kowtow in fear. We're not to run away or retreat. And the third one is that we will fight. This war begins in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Genesis chapter 1. Earth was made. Adam and Eve are in Eden. Eden is this form of paradise. That lasted all of two chapters and we screwed it up. Genesis chapter 3 comes. Do we know what happens? The fall. Adam and Eve sin. There is a serpent that comes slithering through and tempts Adam and Eve to sin. The serpent we find out later in the book of Ezekiel wasn't necessarily, it was called Satan. Satan is a title for what the, what the serpent really is. Serpent is Lucifer, which was an angel that was very powerful, uh, very influential, that re- and in his pride rebelled and was cast to the earth. That was the serpent. The serpent comes, tempts Adam and Eve, and says, you can make your own decisions. You can have your own kingdoms. You don't have to do what God says you have to do. So, in essence, here's what's happening. God had set up a kingdom in Psalms. The, the picture we get of God is that he sits on, in his throne, and he is a king, and he reigns. Kingdom simply means if you are a king of a kingdom, you have say and control of everything that happens. Why? Because you're a king. Who wouldn't want to be king? Right? And so your kingdom. Now, this is the picture. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes. The devil, Lucifer, comes. Sets up what is called a counter kingdom to God's kingdom. And begins to act in a rebellious way against what God has done. So we have God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. In the beginning of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 3, we see a kingdom who is at work to sabotage everything that God is doing. You follow me? This is why Jesus says in Luke, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, if we were to paraphrase and look at what Jesus is saying, he says, your kingdom is not done freely here on earth. Why? Because we have a counter kingdom that's out to sabotage everything that God's kingdom is about. How many of you think we're talking about Lord of the Rings right now? It's what it feels like, but it's the reality of what we get in Scripture. There is a counter kingdom. We see this in our lives. We each have our own kingdoms. We make decisions about our own lives. Some of us do. Some of us have someone make that decision for us. You decided what you should wear today, correct? I always pass my stuff by Carrie. Does this look good? Does this look good? So, kind of. But we, you made a decision on where to park. You made a decision on whether to brush your teeth. Hopefully you did. But you have all of these things where this is your kingdom. This is what you get to choose. This is the realm of your control. We have kingdoms. And then there's God's kingdom. And then there's Satan's kingdom that's trying to subvert what God is doing. We see it every day. Satan has subverted God's kingdom. We're born into this. I see it with my kid. I never taught Judah how to say the words mine. 
But at age two, this horrible word came out, and it has a whiny tone to it. And if you listen, you might be able to hear him say it now. Mine. I never taught him how to be selfish. No one ever taught you how to be selfish. It's just something we're born into. Our kingdoms are always bent towards us. Our wills are bent towards our wills all of the time. This is the backdrop we get in Scripture. We live in the midst of a war between God the greater and Satan, a created lesser being of the fallen world. And this contradicts our modern enlightened society. And this whole thing sounds a little bit funky like a novel from sci-fi. But it's reality that we're living. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, if we're going to read the Bible and take it for what it is, this is the world that we live in. There's more weird passages like this. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel. This is what reality is. Daniel chapter, it's on the screen. Guys, it should be on this. Daniel chapter 10. We'll look at verse 2. Daniel was a man of influence when Babylon came and took over uh, Israel. They took Daniel with them. Daniel then worked in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, which is an awesome name for a child. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had the gift of receiving dreams. Daniel had the gift of interpreting dreams. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, sends it to Daniel to be interpreted. Daniel can't find or can't figure out the name or how to figure this dream out. He couldn't interpret it. So it says Daniel mourned for three weeks. He fasted. Uh, it says that he mourned. In, in verse 3, I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions. I don't use lotions anyway, so I don't understand that part. Uh, at, at all until three weeks were over. Daniel was trying to figure out what this dream meant, and so he's praying for discernment for three weeks, fasting and praying, and nothing happens. How many of us have prayed for something, and we get nothing, and three weeks feels like a cakewalk? Yeah? Okay, Daniel's doing this for three weeks, and then in verse 12, then he continued, uh, an angel came up. Daniel was terrified, which is what you do when you see angels. You, you kind of tremble because they're freaky. Then verse 12, he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before, the, before your God, your words were heard, and I came in response to them. Okay, so three weeks. Three weeks ago he sits down to pray. Prayers were heard. This angel, we think it's Gabriel, came, and he said, I was on my way to you. And then, but the prince of the of but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. So angel dispatched from heaven said, go to Daniel, gets interrupted by the Persian prince, the per prince of the kingdom of Persia, a satanic, a demonic realm, and it held him up for three weeks. Then, Gabriel continues, then Michael, one of the chief princes, he's a good guy, came to help me, but I was detained there with the king of Persia, Another demon. Now, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. And then the angel interprets the dream and then has to get back to aid Michael again. And you read this and go, what? That actually 
happens. There is a war happening all around us. Daniel prays three weeks go by. I heard you on my way to you. I got hung up by the bad guys and I had to fight. I had to call back up. Now I got to go back and help them. There's a war waging around us. And whenever we talk about this sort of thing, it goes against the underlying way that we try and see the world. In our post-modern society, I don't know if it's modern or post-modern, but in our, our culture today, we only trust things that we can see, touch, feel, or smell. It's things that we can get our hands on. But this is talking about an unseen world that's all around us that affects the seen world. In that world, there are personal spiritual beings called angels, and they're at war with other spiritual beings called demons. It's the reality of what the Bible tells us. And I know that this war image is sort of hard to conjure up, but it's the image that we're given. It's a violent image, but it's a violent, uh, unseen world that we can't see. The problem is we never talk about this sort of thing. Well, it's an underlying thing. We all want to know more about spiritual warfare. But the truth is, when we start dabbling into it, it gets a little weird, and so we tend to ignore it. We, never, we, don't, we don't pay much attention to it uh, unless you go to the extreme edges of Christian culture. Uh, you won't see it a lot. And then if you go to the extreme edges, you're seeing the fanatics. Or if you go to the extreme other side, you take the people who never have, make an account for the spiritual. So we tend to sit gladly around and give lip service to something that we don't believe. When I first started studying this, when we first started looking at this years ago, I started looking at spiritual warfare, spiritual realm, there was an image that, someone, that was shared with me. It's the image of the Battle of Bull Run, the first battle uh, in the Civil War. Here it's 25 miles outside of Washington, D.C. The battle goes and the Union Army thought this is going to be a cakewalk, right? We're just going to win this. They thought it would be a 90-minute war. So the Union Army goes out to the grounds of Manasseh, goes out there, and they, they stage. The Southern Army comes up. And then there were people who made a trip. They made a special trip. They packed picnic baskets. And they went and they sat on the edge of the battlefield because they've heard about war. They've heard about this kind of thing, but they've never seen it. They've glorified it, but they've never experienced it. And so they had a picnic on the side of the battlefield. There's a painting of it, and Drake, you want to put that up? This, obviously, they didn't have DSLR footage then. This is a painting of the war, of, of the picnic there. But when people, when the Union Army was overrun, 2,500 casualties in that day, they ran right through the picnic lines. They gave lip service to knowing that there's a battle, but they didn't really take it seriously. It was interesting. It was fascinating to read about fun to talk about, but never really took it to heart. They're in the center of a battle. The church, us, myself, perhaps you, have done the same thing. We've talked about spiritual warfare. We make jokes about spiritual warfare. But have you ever realized that you're not just having a good old picnic 25 miles away from town, that you're right on a battlefield? This is what Scripture tells us. This is what Jesus did. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true with Jesus. Jesus came. Uh, he comes and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
that the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of darkness is basically what he's saying. The kingdom of God is here closer than your breath. It's in your presence. This was revolutionary to those people because they understood and realized that they are in the middle of a battle. But we hear Jesus talking about the kingdom. We just kind of tune it out. We're not used to it. Scripture gives us this. And here's what Jesus does. Uh, and, and Mark 127, it says this. Uh, in church, Jesus casts out demons. We're just going to fly through them. Mark 27, uh, the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He even orders impure spirits and they obey him. Other translations will say he cast out demons. Uh, verse 34, chapter 1. And Jesus healed many people of various diseases. He also drove out many demons that would not let, uh, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Next slide, verse 39. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, driving out demons. Uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God, which is proper theology. He couldn't even get this from his own disciples for a while. Then in verse 23, some people who had opposed Jesus came to him and said, You are basically Satan casting out Satan. And Jesus called them over and he began to talk to them and said, How can Satan cast out Satan? How can a house divided stand? And then in verse 30, 23, he says, So Jesus called them over and began to speak parables and said, How can Satan drive out Satan? And what Jesus ends this parable with, he's going as Jesus the strong man was Satan. Jesus is going to tie up the strong man and raid his house. Back in those days, you didn't have uh, banks with big vaults. Uh, if you were going to protect something, you would hide it real well, or you would keep it in your house, and you would hire a strong man to protect it. Think of the strongest guy you've ever seen, and they would stand out and protect your goods. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not Satan. I'm, not dri I'm driving out Satan, but I can't be Satan driving out Satan. It's completely impossible. Here's what Jesus is doing. He has come to tie up the strong man who is in control of this world. And as he's tied up, you can read on in Mark, we are going to go in to raid his house because the strong man has been defeated. And then, then we see this. There's a struggle. It's an interesting image Jesus paints there. I encourage you to read the story. And then in 1 John 3, 8, uh, uh, John says this, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This stuff is strange. It is literally what movies are made of. Hollywood gets a kick out of this. It's highly sensationalized. It's very dramatic. But for some reason, we can talk about it in the movies, but we talk about it here and we get a little bit weirded out by it. So Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians and he starts talking about spiritual warfare. People in Ephesus were very familiar with the spiritual. If you read in Acts 19, Paul comes into town and he goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the goddess of that area, Artemis. And he starts to pick away at Artemis' control. And then a riot breaks out because he's going against a stronghold. There's a spiritual battle. And then there's this weird story about the seven sons of Sceva who try and go cast out a demon in Ephesus. And the demon looks back at him and says, no. Paul, I have, or Jesus, I know. I don't know this Paul guy. 
and runs them out of town. This was in Ephesus. And so the people of Ephesus were firmly aware of what was happening. And so what they would do is they would build charms and amulets to protect themselves against the, the spiritual, the dark. They, they believed that there were demons in control of everything from the ground into the heavens. And in between was all controlled by demons. And so they would have chants, they would have amulets, they would have charms, and they would count on these things in order to get protection. So Paul is writing to a group of people who have come to know Jesus in this kind of culture, and they're very aware of a spiritual realm. And when we read about it, and, and so they have, we read about their industries, and so their question to Paul most likely would have been, okay, I believe in this Jesus, but do I still need to have my ways to protect myself from, ourselves from the demons? So this is a hot issue for the people in Ephesus. Paul's simple response to them was, yes, we live in a world that is at war and we can't see it. It is a reality. We are in a battle. But Paul's encouragement to them is to stand firm. That they don't need their charms and their amulets. They can stand firm with confidence. We're not to be obsessed, in other words, of all of what's going on around us. We don't have to be fearful, as the people in Ephesus were, that there's going to be something bad that happens. We don't need to be completely on the, on the fanatic side. We have to say Jesus 25 times and we walk into a room in order for this to, to be safe. But we shouldn't ignore it. Paul is giving them this line, we shouldn't be fearful, but we also shouldn't be flippant. We need to be mindful of what's around us, mindful of the war, but care. Don't be afraid of it, but don't be flippant either. Paul wants to assure them and them standing firm that they have authority over anything that can threaten them. And he shows them, and there's little bits and pieces as you read through Ephesians about Paul saying Jesus has been given authority. He sits on the right hand of God and authority over the realm. And there's little tiny snippets that Paul is saying, you have Christ with you. You are in Christ. You have authority over this. You don't need to be afraid. And in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For five chapters, Paul has been talking about how Jesus is exalted above all powers and principalities. All authority has been given to Christ. And now he's saying that authority that has been given to Christ is now resting with you. And, and on our, and our response to it, be strong, stand firm. Do we see a paradox? On one hand, we have the battles that, that is happening. On the other hand, we have the battle that is won. The battle is happening, the battle is won. Our job is to stand firm and fight. The battle's been taken care of with Christ. Strong man's tied up, completely powerless, but we still have to fight against it. In our backyard, we've been getting raccoons, and, and they're cute little things. Uh, they poop in my yard, and it threw me for a loop because I walk out there going, where did that come from? I don't have a dog. And I'm walking through, and I, the raccoon's there, and it's been tearing up Judah's soccer balls, and any kind of inflatable toy that's out there is completely destroyed by morning. 
and it's costed us about 20 bucks replacing soccer balls, but these little raccoons are there, little trash pandas, I guess they're called, <laughs> which are totally adorable if you're sitting across the yard and watching them walk by. I mean, they got their little masks on. They're kind of cool. There, it's a family, so there's baby raccoons, which is even cuter. And so it's like, great. Raccoons are perfectly harmless if I'm sitting across the backyard from them, right? But if I corner a raccoon, what happens? Bad news. That raccoon becomes pretty vicious. Same thing with bears. Bears are cool when you're about three miles away. You get any closer to a bear, you come between a bear and mama, and you're in trouble. When they feel threatened, they'll fight back. This is what's happening in the world that's between us. We have an enemy that's been beaten. We have an enemy that's been tied up. We have an enemy that's threatened. And like a raccoon or a bear, when they're threatened, they begin to fight back. One illustration that I read this week was like in World War II. The, world, uh, the European War was over with D-Day. That's when they knew Germany was going to be defeated. But they still had to fight and take Berlin. The strongest fight comes when the enemy's already been defeated. Satan's defeated, he's tied up, but we're still in a battle. And this is the context in which I believe as followers of Jesus we, believe, we live. We live in an in-between time. Between the first coming of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, and then the second coming of Jesus. In that time, Satan's been defeated. He's been triumphed. But because of the death, and because of the death and resurrection of Christ, he still fights, and we're called to fight too. However, we do not fight from a position of weakness. Paul says, stand firm. Look what else he says. Be strong in the Lord because of his, Christ's, mighty power. As long as we have the in the Lord right, we're good. We don't have to worry about it. Then he says to put on the full armor of God. And when I grew up, uh, there was a whole industry to the full armor of God. Like Christian bookstores love this. You can go, and my parents did this, we had armor that we would put on and like pretend armor. This was the armor of God. There's books, there's devotionals, and those are all good, but I don't think Paul is really wanting us to study every single piece of the armor. Here's what Paul is doing. He's looking at a Roman centurion, and he's looking at the gospel, and he's looking at the battle in which we live in, and he says, the Roman centurion, these guys know what those look like. Ephesus had a pretty big military presence. Put on the armor of Christ as you would a Roman centurion. There's a breastplate. There's something to go on the feet. There's helmets. Uh, we can analyze it more, but his point is the gospel of Jesus and the, armor of Christ, and the armor of Christ is a metaphor that they would have known. He's trying to paint a visual of how they stand firm, and he's using something that everyone knows what, looks, what it looks like. Instead of literal, literal armor, he's showing us the gospel, the truth of who Christ is that they have been defeated. He says there's righteousness, there's peace, there's salvation, and there's truth. There's truth, not only the truth of Christ, what he did to defeat Satan, but there's also the truth of who you are. When Satan comes and tempts you, what's the first temptation that he gives you? You're not enough. That you're lacking. That I need this in order to make myself 
better. So when he says the truth, it's the truth of who God is, but it's also the truth of who God says you are, that you are complete, that you don't need this temptation. The first temptation that that Satan throws at Jesus in the desert is a temptation to take him away of what God says about him. Before Jesus goes into the desert, what's the words that God says about his son? This is my son in who I am well pleased. The temptations that Satan then throws at Jesus are all things to make to cast doubt on that statement that God is well pleased in you. You have Christ. You have God's pleasure written on your heart. He is pleased in who you are. He is proud of you. Satan's first attack is make you doubt that. Don't doubt it for a minute. Put on the truth of who you are in Christ, not who you were. That's the first. And then he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Many of us know this verse, and we like this verse. We like to quote this verse, but in all honesty, we act completely the opposite. We love to battle against flesh and blood. We have whole industries that battle against flesh and blood. We love to slander and demean. We listen to the radio, listen to the news. Slander and demeaning is the name of the game. It's as though we really actually think that we're fighting against each other. If we really believe that the battle is against, that isn't against flesh and blood, then you and I would live a little differently. But as Christians, we're really good at friendly fire. We like to shoot each other, don't we? Shoot each other down. We're not the enemy, Paul is saying. It's flesh and blood. And remember how, how Jesus said we fight the enemies, we bless them, we speak truth to them, we pray for them. And let's just start there before we, talk, before we start talking bad about how everyone is. We're not the enemy. Now we could take this too far. The temptation is to think that it's only powers and only principalities that we're fighting against and that there's no such thing as flesh and blood. There are flesh and blood problems. There are things that are, that are real that we fight against. But because we think things are powers and principalities, usually our first line of how to get over something is what? Read the Bible and pray more. That's how we suggest things. But sometimes there are things where you need help, where we need help. For example, I have anxiety. I've talked about it a while. I take things to help curve it. I have regiments that help my anxiety. It keeps me up at night still, and I hate it. The worst thing that someone could say to me, in fact, did say to me, about my anxiety was simply, you should just read the Bible and pray more, and then it'll go away. It never worked. Because then, I'm sitting there reading the Bible and stressing that I'm not reading the right passage. Or I'm not reading enough of the right passage. Or, and then I pray and think, did I pray the right words? Did I, did I, did I pray long enough? So there was an incredible feeling when someone sat me down and said, we are whole people. Yes, you have anxiety. It's a thing. It's in your family. Satan can use the anxiety against you 
But the anxiety doesn't necessarily mean it's Satan. That's a flesh and blood thing. We are whole people. There's a, there's a physical part. There's an emotional part. And yes, there's a spiritual part that we need to be mindful of. The spiritual component is not the only thing that's true. There are pieces of it. There are pieces of it that's true. And sure, reading the Bible and praying might keep a foothold in the anxiety, but sometimes it will not cure it. That's a flesh and blood problem that needs sometimes flesh and blood help. So how do we fight against it? Or how do we tell what is flesh and blood? Paul gives us some advice. First, Paul tells them to stand firm and he gives them six components of defense, but it's not enough. We need to fight. And so he says in verse 18, take the helmet of salvation, in verse 17, of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray for me that wherever I speak, that I will, that I will do so fearlessly, making known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare fearlessly as I should. Again, Paul is talking about this battle that's happening on. He's, he's used this Roman soldier, and now he's talking about fighting tactics. Paul says the first weapon that we have is the truth of God, who Christ says you are, and then the second weapon that we have, prayer. Looking at the fighting tactics of Romans, the Romans had this thing. All of their armor was front-facing. Go back and look at the armor of God. There's nothing covering the back. It's all front-facing. They had their shields that were one and a half times the size of them, so they can put it here, and it would cover me. That's a large shield. And then maybe the next guy over. And they would protect each other. And then if they ever came to an attack from archers, they had this practice. You probably saw it on the Gladiator movie with Russell Crowe, right? They put their, they put their shield down. The guys behind them would put their shield over the top of themselves and the person in front of them, and the guys in the way back would seal the back end. They had each other's back. They didn't need back armor because the person behind them covered them with their own armor. Paul is telling these people, hey, in order to fight against this, we need prayer. Prayer is how they fight the battles. Be strong. Don't be fearful. Go into battle, but go into battle knowing that the person behind you has your back. And if we're constantly fighting against each other, if we're constantly demeaning and tearing each other down, that's not having the person's back behind us or in front of us. We have each other's back. In the Christian life, in other words, you're not meant to live this one alone. If you're isolated, if you're all by yourself, out on the wings, you're fighting a battle by yourself and you don't have anybody to protect you. Literally, we are called to guard each other. We have people to watch our backs not in, in more than one way, not just to protect us in prayer, but we have people who watch our backs and speak the truth into our lives. I have friends that call me and they ask me about anything. Everything's on the table. What's my internet search like? Uh, how am I treating Carrie? Uh, what's my thought patterns? And they just, there's nothing off limits to my friends. 
and they'll ask me, what are they doing? They're watching my back. They're asking me about my pride, my relationships. They're my shields. And if I ever have a problem, they'll button down the hatches with me and protect me because we're not meant to live this life alone. So Paul says to this tiny church in Ephesus, you have each other. We pray for each other. And while you're at it, pray for me. This is the battle that this is how we fight the battles. One of the simple ways we do this is we have gatherings and we perpetually never have enough gatherings. We have people who will get together and in your gathering, it is simply this, to come together, to protect each other, to pray for one another so we don't live this life on your own. You go out solo, you're done. You're going to get attacked and you have no one to watch for you. It's never just me and Jesus. You're never just by yourself. Jesus never set it up this way. Some of us live in terror of this stuff, but Paul is saying you don't have to live in terror. This is why we need to find people. Some of us live in ignorance of this stuff, and we shouldn't because this is a reality. There are people around us. The people around us point out the areas where we are weak. They point out the areas where perhaps the devil can get a foothold. Paul talks about this in Ephesians, the two chapters before. In your anger, don't sin. And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him the weakest part of you where he can get in and attack you. Demons are like rats. They look for ways in. And what is suggested is that they're looking for these footholds in our lives that aren't in alignment with Christ. If there's a spot in you where you are drifting They'll go right into that and exploit it. And they're attacking you. Drug use, anger, jealousy, greed, pornography, all footholds where the enemy can get a hold of you. And they're not necessarily sinful things that are all footholds. What about your fantasy life? When you start thinking of things that aren't real and you get lost between the reality and what could be, what's that do? Steals your joy. What about the, the constant checking in of everything on the internet? What's that do? It distracts you from what's in front of you. Uh, it, what, what pictures and stories that cultivate dissatisfaction around you? What the main thing is here is where are you vulnerable? Where can the devil simply get in and attack you? Are you overworked? Where you're exhausted? You don't have your community around you because you're working so much? Are you isolated? It's just me and Jesus. I can be by myself. I'm introverted, so I don't like to be around people. Where are you, and what are we doing to cover up that weakness? Where are you vulnerable? Today, of all days, when we start looking about the reality of this world, it's perfectly fine to begin to do some questioning, because this is probably what the people of Israel, or people of Ephesus, were doing. Where are we vulnerable to attack. Some of us have allowed the dark things to take over our lives, and it's resided there for far too long. And Jesus wants to set you free of that. There are also some who are terrified of this world, and Jesus wants to calm your fears so that you stand firm. And there's more of us that Jesus just wants to wash over you with his love and his grace and, and remind you of the fact that he dwells in you he loves you, he's adopted you, he claims you as his own, 
you're his and the power of Christ rests firmly with you. I don't know where you sit today with all of this. If you're weirded out by it, if it's just strange. But one of the things I want us to do is simply practice what Paul says. We did this a lot when we were over at the high school. I want to see if we can do it today. I'd like us to break up into groups. These chairs are movable, and we'll, we'll move them back. But I'd like us to break up into our rows and simply pray for each other. We don't have to get really involved. We don't have to start taking requests. If you have one, awesome. Share it. But simply, what's your name? I want to pray for you. And the prayer is simple. Pray that you stand strong. And if something comes to your mind to pray for about this person, pray what comes to your mind. It might be completely off. But be obedient. Maybe it's right on. And this is exactly what Jesus wants you to pray for with this person. If we take this scripture seriously, then we have to take this suggestion seriously too. We have to have each other's back. We have to stand in this fight together. There's no shame in praying. There's no shame in asking for prayer. This is what we have in common. We are all on the same team fighting the same battle. So I'm going to ask us all to stand up. Look down your row. That looks like a good prayer group to you, doesn't it? Move some chairs. Circle up. If you have a request, feel free to share it and simply pray. We'll do this for as long as we need.